Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another Battleground PA podcast. This is Joyce Davis, Penn Live's opinion editor and host of Battleground PA. And it looks like we are never wanting for news and controversy in the 2020 elections. And today we will discuss all of that, all of the latest with Iowa, and we'll even offer some predictions, I would assume, on New Hampshire. But we're also stepping into the congressional elections, joined by our first Pennsylvania congressional candidate, Tom Breyer. So stay tuned. We'll bring in Rajat Harris, our Democratic analyst, and Republican Jeffrey Lord for what is promising to be a really intense conversation. This is Battleground EA, a Penn Live podcast discussing the issues that matter to Pennsylvanians and documenting the events in our state that will shape the battle for your vote in the 2020 presidential elections. Okay, we're back and we're ready to get started. If you would like to join the conversation, you can do so at Battleground PA on Twitter and Facebook. And you can send us an email at info at battlegroundpa.org. So welcome again, Rajette. Welcome, Jeffrey. And who is this young man sitting to my left here? I think it is Tom Breyer. So let's do this. Everybody knows you guys. They know Rajette. They know Jeffrey. I'm going to let you tell us who you are and why in the world would you want to run for Congress? Thanks, Joyce. Hey, Jeffrey. Hey, Rajat. It's great to be with you guys this morning. My name is Tom Breyer. I'm from Hershey, Pennsylvania. Sweetest place on earth. That's right. The chocolate <laughs> bubble. Right. <laughs> and, you know, politics has always been something, I'm sure like all of you, that I've always been interested in. I, I worked for Senator Casey in high school and in college, volunteered for President Obama's campaign, always had a discretionary interest in politics, and one day always thought about trying to get into public service. That changed for me really for two reasons. The first was the 2016 election. I think we all realized that regardless of outcome, that our system was broken, that we had put ourselves into a dynamic where politics as a whole was being compromised as a value system. And the more I watched that and the more I realized what was happening, you know, I thought it was really honestly quite overwhelming to see what was happening in our country. And after the election, I went back and, and actually ended up writing a book about the ideological origins of our country, the founders' huh. philosophy of government, to try to understand what, what a course correction looks like. What's the name of the book? While Reason Slept. While Reason Slept. Okay. Okay. And you know, the, the more I studied what the founders hoped democracy to be and what they envisioned our country to be, the more apparent it became to me just how far off track we've gotten. Mm -hmm. And that dovetailed with, you know, some personal tragedies that I saw firsthand. I, I've had three friends pass away from opioids. Oh, wow. Two in the past year or so. Mm -hmm. Is that one of your main platforms that, to try to tackled the opioid epidemic? It is. And, and as of 2017, Pennsylvania had the most opioid desperate day in the country. Mm. And that to me is a product of despair and apathy and, and not having any hope in the future. And so those confluence of circumstances really kind of coalesced to give me this real sense of urgency to say that in 2020, we have a chance to really change what our future will look like and why sit on the sidelines and not try to play a role in that. Okay. Well, why don't we stop right there? I'm going to bring in our analyst here, Roget, because you made a statement that's a little bit controversial, and I'm sure Jeffrey wants to issue with it. The system is broken. I mean, maybe he does. But before we get started, I do want to have one note of disclosure for our, all of our listeners there. And I have to disclose that my son apparently is working on your campaign. So apparently. I want to put that out there <laughs> so that we'll know, but, uh, but I'm not. <laughs> all right. So why don't we get started now? He said the system is broken. Jeffrey, let's start with you. That's a slap, I believe, at uh, what happened in 2016. Well, some of us think the system worked in 2016. 
And I have to say, this is where the silver hair comes in, that I've heard a version of that for my entire life. Senator John F. Kennedy was making this point when I was in the fourth grade in 1960. Let's get the country moving forward again. He thought things were not working very effectively. Robert Kennedy made it in 1968. But it's always, it's a galvanizing thing for young people. Yes, they want yes. to come in, that, they see things and, broken, and they want yeah. to change and, it, and right? I, I, I want to be clear here that, I mean, while I doubtless disagree with Tom on a lot of things, I want to encourage him because mm. I was very inspired by President Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Dr. King. I wanted to get into politics. I ran for the legislature when I was 24 years old. Thankfully, I lost. <laughs> <laughs> So I didn't get caught up in all of that and uh, wound up going to Washington and eventually made my way to the White House. So this is a good Trying thing. to change the system. Trying to change so the system. Exactly. exactly. So well, let's, let's bring in Rajet here. Rajet, he says the system is broken. Iowa looks a little broken to me, but go <laughs> <laughs> tell me about good it. Good point. <laughs> well, the system is broken. People's lives aren't improving. Um, I came over here on an Uber drive and my driver was telling me, the jobs and the work that he has to do just to make ends meet. Mm. So that's telling me that the system isn't working for a lot of people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So let's get back to Tom. Tom, you, you've made it clear you think the system is broken and you stepped up as a young man to want to do something about it, which we, we all applaud. I think yes. we do that. The second thing you brought up is for you, this opioid epidemic is, is crucial. Is there a third or fourth thing that you see as key to your platform? There is. And I, just to clarify on the on the broken government for, mm -hmm. for a quick second, yeah. and policy aside, it's more of the structure of government. You know, in 1968, we weren't spending $4.6 billion on advertising. We didn't have massive corporations giving to political candidates. Um, we didn't have a, a system where there was zero compromise or zero bipartisanship. And so I think there's always been the sentiment that we have to change who's in office. But to me, the structure of the system itself really is, is different. So you, you bring up bipartisanship. You, do you feel that you have the ability to actually reach across the aisle to bring in people like Jeffrey and actually get things done? Of course. And, and you have to. My favorite quotes from Benjamin Franklin that I found when I was writing my book was he was asked in 1787 after the Constitutional Convention by a journalist whether he agreed with the final draft of the Constitution. And he said, I agree with none of it. And that's why I think it's perfect. Uh, <laughs> it was a recognition that democracy requires compromise and everybody comes at a given situation with different backgrounds and experiences. But at the end of the day, what you're really trying to achieve is the common good. And if that's your mission, then I think there can be respected disagreements if you're seeking the same goal. So we've got bipartisanship. You're really going to push that, right? Does that sound good to you, Jeffrey? I mean, does it sound like something that this young man could tackle and, and, and win? I hesitate here. Hesitate. Let, let, let me, and let me explain why. Margaret Thatcher, the late British prime minister, used to talk about what she called the socialist ratchet, by which she meant, and she was, of course, using the British system as an example, but it applies, I think, to the American system as well. And what she was saying was that a Labor Party government would come to power, move the country, move the British government left, and then a, they'd run out of steam and a conservative government would take over and they just sort of sit there and manage it until they run out of steam and then another labor government comes and moves it further to the left so that constantly it's it was ratcheting churn, yeah. left. I think that that's what's happened, frankly, with the Republican Party in the past is that in bipartisanship, quote unquote, they sign on and we keep moving, you know, to bigger government, more expensive government. To the left. To the left, to the left, okay, to the left. Okay. And therein lies the problem. So that so you're not, when I, we, I'm not hearing that you're against compromise. I, I'm not against compromise, okay. but I'd like to see it move in the other direction. To the right. To the right. To the right, to the right, to the right. Okay. Okay. Rajat, what about you? I mean, I don't chance 
Democrats, he can lead the Democrat bipartisan movement. But we don't have a choice. And going back to, again, government is supposed to improve people's lives. Mm. And it's never going to do that if we don't have more compromise and bipartisan bipartisanship. Mm -hmm. Okay. We need that. Okay. So we've got opioid, we've got bipartisan. What else? To me, it's um, it's kind of twofold. The first is changing the way people view public service. There was a, a, a study that came out recently from Pew Research where they said that 84% of Americans don't trust politicians. That's Imagine true. not trusting your teacher or your lawyer or your mechanic or your doctor. Or your newspaper or your reporter. Newspaper <laughs> reporter. Right? I mean, really, <laughs> right, you, right. we can't live in a society without trust. And the fact that we elect public servants who we don't trust, I think, is the starting point for reform, which is why we pledge to do a town hall recorder which is why we're, uh, we're running a grassroots campaign and going out and meeting voters regardless of where they are to try to establish that relationship. And then beyond that, it's inverting our economic structure so that it helps working families. I mean, for the first time in American history, billionaires are paying a lower effective tax rate than the middle class. 65% of Americans die in debt. The median retirement account balance is $0. They've actually created now a new class of poverty to describe the phenomenon that we're living with today. Um, and you might even be familiar with it. It goes by the acronym ALICE. Oh, yes. United Way. Yeah, I'm on the board of United Way. ALICE is a big deal. It's people cannot make ends meet even with two and three jobs. Exactly. Yeah. It's uh, And it means asset limited, income constrained, but employed. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. most people rent their homes or lease their cars. They don't have any savings. Income constrained means that wages haven't risen with the cost of inflation in the better part of three decades, but they have a job. Mm. They have a side hustle. They can work for Uber or Lyft, Airbnb, or in the gig economy, but they don't see their kids. They don't have quality health care. Mm -hmm. They don't have retirement savings. And like I mentioned earlier, there's a good chance that they'll live out their lives in debt. And that's what leads to, to despair and apathy and an inability to make your way up in the world. And for me, um, the fact that we're prioritizing, giving more money to the top 1% and not actually helping people who are working every single day to make their lives better, I think reflects everything that's wrong with our country today. Well, that's a good point. Now, now I know the Republican and, the, and, and President Trump's uh, at least philosophy is that if you help those businesses, if you help the people who are the job producers, it's supposed to trickle down and lift all the boats, right? That doesn't seem to be happening, Jeffrey. What is what's I don't the response to that? I, okay. I don't agree. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and number two, I have a number one that I'll come back to in a second. <laughs> okay. but, but number two, I have never worked for somebody who was poor. I've always worked for people who had the money to pay me, and they have to have the money to pay you to create a job. But my, my first question to you, Tom, is this. When you talk about a lack of trust in, the, in politicians, something I agree with, but I think one of the problems is, and I, and I would ask you, let's say you win the election. After, what, 10, 10 years, will you voluntarily term limit yourself? Because I think one of the problems that I finally eventually became aware of is too many politicians, instead of coming into the political system, working on it, solving a problem, and then coming back home, they stay forever, and they make it a so career. So you want to know what he wants to do about yeah, term limits. right. Well, let, let's come back. I'm going to let him do that. But, Rajat, why don't you pull in here, and uh, what about this Alice thing? Do you feel that he—I mean, you're, you're looking at both of the candidates in the congressional race. Is this, Alice, a thing for both of these candidates? The, I think DePasquale is the other congressional candidate from the Democratic side, right? It is. Mm -hmm. um, but what I find interesting is people normally say they distrust politicians, but yet they trust their own. Mm. And that's why they stay there. Going back to what Jeffrey was just saying, that's why they stay there for so long, because they dislike everyone else's. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
politician. But, but the term so limit is a good is a good it point. Is. Yeah. And I'm personally for term limits. You are. Yes, See, I've I'm, always I'm supported back and those. forth on this. I mean, it, it is true. The the voters decide. They can term limit. I mean, it's not like you you force people to vote for some. And yet. It is hard sometimes to move out an incumbent. So, so what? Are you, let's see what you say on term limit. I'm with you, Joyce. This is something I've thought a lot about, and I'm I'm not sure to be honest. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you read about what the founders intended public service to be. They hoped that people would go into politics for you know, like Jeffrey said, a decade or so, commit themselves to democracy for a few years, and then return to private life. For me, though, I really do think we can give voters the choice. But the the problem is money in politics. And so there's a reason HR1 was the first proposal when the Democrats took the House was because we have politicians in office today who are basically elected year in and year out on the backs of wealthy donors. And so if we got money out of politics, I think that would create a more even playing field. And so if you wanted to vote for John McCain, if you wanted to vote for Elijah Cummings, if you wanted to vote for John Lewis, those are good and decent people who are doing the right thing for their constituents. And, uh, and I, I'm not sure limiting them on the basis of years in service is the right way to go. I'd like to see us get money out of politics first and then see where that takes us. So Can talk- I say why I'm yeah, for term limits? Yeah, yeah. Since I'm the only one here <laughs> that's for term no, limits. No, he's for term limits. Oh, you, you, are? And jo- okay. you and Jeffrey are agreeing. Limits. Oh, wow. Uh-oh. Tom's You're bringing welcome. us together. <laughs> um, Bipartisanship. That's what I'm here for. We have overcome. Very <laughs> um, good. Um, I do agree with money in politics, which is why I think this year is very interesting because uh, Michael Bloomberg is just going to show us just how important money is in in politics. But number two, uh, running for office is a lot of work. You know, we're a two-party system, and a lot of times it is the political parties who often choose who gets to represent that person running for office. You can't run for office just as an independent. That's why Donald Trump infiltrated the Republican Mm -hmm. Party. We have two candidates now infiltrating the Democratic Party. So to just say the voters have a choice, that's not true. A lot of times they don't just have a choice. Mm -hmm. Number two, I believe that when someone is there for so long, and we see this all the time, elected officials continue to get indicted. You get there first. I don't know what happens, but you somehow get corrupted. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I think people run for office and they get there with good intentions. But unfortunately, once you're there after a certain amount of time, something changes in them. Yeah. And number three. It's all about the ideas and making that change. When you're there for so long, can you still get those fresh new ideas? And I'm mm. not saying you can't, but I do think it's good to to change those ideas, which brings me to my final point. This is public service. This was never supposed to be a permanent job. Mm. And it's turned into a job more so than public service, fact, which is another reason why I'm for term limits. So different, but yet there have been some wonderful statesmen who've, I mean, John McCain stayed in his whole life, right? I mean, I, I mean, I'm assuming you still like him, even though Trump didn't. But <laughs> just, just asking, <laughs> touche. Sure. But he was a leader. You know, I mentioned the Kennedys. I met Ted Kennedy when I was, uh, I think, 11 years old. Mm. He was newly elected to the United States Senate. He spent the rest of his entire life there. You know, after a while, I think that's not. You think good. that's? I you're mean, you're what, really forgetting about whatever you want to say blood. about Elizabeth Warren. She holds Ted Kennedy's seat now. Mm. It went to Scott Brown, and then it went to Elizabeth Warren. That's good. I mean, Mm. that's fresh blood pumped in, and and it is about ideas. And I've seen it, having worked on Capitol Hill in Washington in both House and Senate. People eventually think it's all about them. 
Yeah, and right. it's their power and all that kind of thing, well, and, and that's not good. And, and people are more loyal to their political parties than they are to the people who elect them. Yeah, and that's becoming a problem as well. Politics is supposed to breed leaders, but we have more followers. Mm. Than well, we now have you've leaders. you've heard all of this, Tom. You've heard what they've said, and how? I mean, as we got, we got to take a break in, the, in in right after this, but. How will you protect yourself? You come in, and I absolutely believe you're coming in with fresh ideas, with with dedication, with uncorruptibility. But how would you? What do you do to prevent yourself from going down that corruption route? I think you have to have a constant interaction with the voters, uh, and that's why we pledge to do a town hall every quarter. You know, if if there's a situation where I haven't been able to follow through on a promise that I've made, and and I don't come through, then you give voters a choice to hold you accountable. Try to explain where you think we can do better and where we've gone wrong and have a constant conversation with your constituents. And I think if you do that and you trust voters to be brave enough to be told the truth and not try to peddle platitudes about the issues that we're facing and actually have meaningful conversations, then I think if you do that, voters will give you that same respect back. Very good. Don't peddle platitudes. I like that. I'm going to use that. Okay, we will be right back. Stay tuned for more conversation. And this time we're going to focus on Iowa and New Hampshire. Okay, we are back. We had a scintillating conversation with Tom Breyer, candidate, congressional candidate from Pennsylvania. And now we are going to really mix it up with Tom, with Rougette, with Jeffrey to talk about what is going on again in Iowa and in New Hampshire, right? What do you, and also we do have to talk about your friend, President Trump and his firing of everybody. Not everybody, but some people. Okay, so we got to get there. He didn't fire me. (laughs) No, you're still on the job, right? Thank goodness. All right. But let's let's start with uh, Iowa. Anything, any comments on, you know, it's just been a disaster after disaster in Iowa. I mean, it's not been good for the Democratic Party. Am I right? I mean, doesn't it make you feel a little embarrassed to be a Democrat? Well, we saw this in 2012 when Iowa called it for Mitt Romney and two weeks later said that we were wrong and it was actually Rick Santorum who won. And so, you know, what's that Mark Twain line? History doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. Uh, (laughs) We're seeing we're playing that's playing out again in real time. It is, but it is disappointing. Obviously, you want to see the first real test run smoothly, and to have there be a hiccup along the way, I think, just adds to that level of mistrust that we're seeing and 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 uncertainty. that's, That's the thing that kills me. I mean, we it really does make a voter stop and think, well, what's happening to our elections? Can we try? Is this Russia? I wonder if this is Russia. Go ahead. Well, the thing that sort of bugs me is, and and this is 21st century stuff, this whole business of, well, we got the app, but we didn't try the app out or the app, you know, this would be my app. Give everybody a piece of paper, let them mark it by hand, and then count it. Okay, and there's nothing boomer. complicated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, Boomer. Well, I mean, this long predates Boomer. I mean, this right. this is, you, yeah, I you hear know. You. I hear you. This has been going on in this country for a couple hundred years. And when you get people who are so caught up with technology that they don't understand it and it doesn't operate and well, something is as important as the Iowa that, Well, that could be the key there where they're Boomers trying to operate technology. But go ahead, Rosette. <laughs> I think part of the problem, too, is that the media and a lot of your political pundits put so much stock into Iowa. There are 50 states. Why are we putting all of the stakes onto one state? Now, I'm not saying it wasn't disappointing. Obviously, it was. And obviously, whoever 
would have come up victorious, didn't get that momentum going into New Hampshire today. Although, although Buttigieg is doing great. I mean, even though it looks like he would have been declared the victory, he didn't get that ah, rah, rah, rah. He but. didn't, but he was expected to do well in Iowa. He's mm-hmm. expected to do well in New Hampshire. Um, but when we get into uh, Nevada, when we, when we get into South Carolina, when we get into states that represent more the Democratic Party, his numbers don't look so good. Is that right? So again, you know, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And again, going back to Iowa, we put so much stock into two small states determining who the nominee is. So when it doesn't work out, then, you know, everything breaks loose because, oh my goodness, we have to let the voters actually decide who's going to be our nominee. So are we thinking he's going to be in the lead in New Hampshire as well? Well, I don't know. I or, mean, it looks to me like it's between he and Bernie Sanders. Yeah, uh, frankly, yeah, yeah. you know, we'll know. You know, by this I'm, I'm going to tell week, you, but, with those two at least now at the top, it does so- seem like uh, Democratic voters at least are really looking for something, some dramatic ideas and change and fresh ideas, right? I mean, I think so, and I think what both. Pete and Bernie show is the power of grassroots organizing. I mean, that's what it really comes down to for me is having a really robust field staff, encouraging volunteers to get involved, encouraging new people to get involved in the political process, because that's what makes it exciting. Well, uh, encouraging younger people, too, because, I mean, young people are notorious for sitting stuff out, not really being engaged, right? How are you going to do that? You know, I can go to young people and say, listen, I have a six-figure student loan bill. I've seen friends struggle with opioids. You know, I'm concerned about the future and what climate change might bring to, to our lives. The beauty of our situation is that if we vote, we can change that. And especially in this district, which, which is the most important district in arguably the most important state and perhaps the most important election of our lifetimes, we can play a real role in, in deciding who's going to dictate the future for the rest of our lives. And that's a pretty powerful message. But Bernie has always had college-age students. He's ah, always had true. young people. That's true. When we think back to our last Democratic uh, president, which was Barack Obama, he won because he was able to actually expand that base. And none of these candidates at this point have been able to do so. I look at a poll from yesterday that came out from Critic Piac. Joe Biden, for instance, uh, he has South Carolina as his firewall, but he has been doing very bad, not just in the debates, but in Iowa. And even he said this morning on the news, he doesn't expect to do very well today. He had over 50 percent of black voters. And I know I keep bringing this up, but black voters are the bedrock of a Democratic Party primary, specifically black women. But his black support was slashed to like 27%. This was a poll from yesterday. Did those voters go to Bernie or Pete? No, they're going to Michael Bloomberg. Oh, okay. Michael Bloomberg's support among African Americans tripled. He went from 4% just in December to 22% as of yesterday. So again, when we're talking about who's surging, this is a marathon. We have to look at all the states, and particularly those states that better rep- represents the Democratic Party before well, right, we start making these type you know, of just, just predictions. Before we sat down, I saw a news alert that uh, a tape, <laughs> you just have to love the way the world works, a tape has surfaced of Michael Bloomberg praising stop and frisk. I, I would think might do him some damage here with, with black Americans. It might, but it might not. You've got to understand, some, many black Americans are also concerned about crime, yeah, and they're conservative. Right. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, right. I, I can hear it now, and, the, you know, yeah, stop and right. frisk. <laughs> but, but, I, and one other thing I just want to say, I, I want to speak up for Iowa and New Hampshire. A Pete Buttigieg, or in previous years, a Barack Obama, or a Jimmy Carter, or Bill Clinton, who are relatively unknown at a national level, simply can't get started 
if they're not in a small state where they can do retail politics. I mean, this is one of the reasons why Pete Buttigieg did so well in Iowa was because he is exactly could get himself out there, do retail politics, as opposed to somebody like Joe Biden. And when Biden, you say retail, it means just person to person. Person to person, just right, not, which, yeah, which is not right. possible in a, in a big state where you've got, uh, you know, in Pennsylvania, you've got, what, five, six media markets. You've got to get from Philadelphia to Erie and all this kind of thing. You've got to have the money to do that. And a lot of these beginning candidates don't have that. So Iowa and New Hampshire gives them that forum. And I think that's a good thing. And I agree with that. But those two states aren't going to choose the presidency. You have to no, be able to no. capitalize on that and expand your base. Yes, right? I agree it, with that's, that. Yeah. That's yeah. my them a chance. But let me tell you two things I want to talk about. The money. Now, that's another thing. It takes a lot of money to run a congressional campaign, right? How are you do- dealing with that? I mean, it's you got to raise the money to get the message out. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't too long I was delivering pizza here at Brickers Pizza <laughs> at Hershey either. So it's a, a new phenomenon for me. Uh, yeah, I remember the first time I saw a comma in my checking account, I was <laughs> jumping for joy. Hallelujah. Yeah. <laughs> it is expensive. And especially now that Michael Bloomberg just came in and dropped $10 million on ads in Pennsylvania, it's, it's even skyrocketed the price even more. But we've raised over $400,000, all from individual donors, wow. um, which just to give it some context, uh, George Scott, who ran a great campaign in 2018. Yep. Raised only ninety thousand in the whole primary, um, okay. and so you know we've raised four hundred with another quarter to go, and and I think that's because we're running a grassroots campaign. Almost forty percent of our donors are Republicans. Ninety percent are first-time donors. Forty percent of your donors are Republicans. Yeah. Really? Well, okay. I knew my very first fundraiser was with twenty Republicans because I knew if that if, if I ran into a wall there mm-hmm. uh, and and didn't get any traction that I would have to reassess. Um, it is a slightly Republican district, and if you can't win over Republicans with a bipartisan message, then you're not doing it the right way. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've been able to do. And so it's encouraging new people to realize it's important to run for office and then also giving them the context to show them where does the money go. Yeah. You know, it, it's expensive to have a staff and do a poll and do a media buy and, and have a real grassroots campaign. And I think once you give people the context of saying here's where that money goes, then there's no quarrels with um, investing in that. Well, that's what Bernie has done, though. He's he's done grassroots. It's, he doesn't want these big donors, right? I mean, it does does that? I mean, Bloomberg has no donors, right? It's just all him, right? I well, he probably right? has he's a few, not, but he's not accepting donations. He's not accept- that's why the DNC oh, really? changed the rules oh. for him to be able to be part of the debate. I see. And yet, Trump started off with saying it was going to be self financed, but he he changed right. that. And, and I and I can tell you because I've talked to Brad Parscale about this, the campaign manager. Almost, uh, the, I mean, the vast majority of their donations are coming from people who kick in two hundred dollars or less. Uh, they're not big, you know, hedge fund managers and all of that kind of thing. In President Trump's campaign. In President oh, okay. Trump's campaign. Right. And, it, and it's raised a fortune for them um, in small donations, which is a good thing. Well, let's let's talk. Yeah, go ahead. Regret. I was just going to say, though, it's a catch-22. Um, if you're already wealthy, obviously, you can finance your own campaign. If you're already a senator or somewhat, as Donald Trump was in the public eye, you're known for people to donate your campaign. This is where when you look at someone like Mayor Pete or even someone even more unknown, you kind of feel for because if you're not independently wealthy, you're not in a position where people know you. You don't know the people to give you those $220 donations. But yet if you accept money from someone who believes in you, then all of a sudden you're a sellout. So there's so many ways that we eliminate people before they even have the chance to show us who they really are. Politics is a tough business. But uh, two things. I want to come back because I I don't want to miss this discussion about the issue that I think galvanized people, young people to Bernie, and that's this college debt stuff. You you brought that up, but I want to really delve into that. But before I do, 
Let's talk about President Trump firing poor Vindman, and he's coming here to Pennsylvania, apparently, the U.S. Army War College. That's what we've, we've got yeah. reported. He's going to be here for the summer, right? Well, yeah. I mean, let me say— He as, sounds like a nice man, though. Come as, on. As, <laughs> as, as somebody who worked in the White House, let me assure you that the President of the United States, no matter whom that may be— has a 100% right to fire Absolutely. the people who Absolutely. work for them. He's got to trust the people around him. Yeah. And what did not impress me about Lieutenant Colonel Vindman was this business. You know, look, if he disagreed with something the president did, the way to deal with it is you ask for an appointment with the president. You go in there, you look the president in the eye, and you say, sir, I think you've made a mistake. I disagree. You pull, you reach in your pocket, pull out your letter of resignation, and then in this day and age, you leave, you write a book, and you go on the talk circuit, <laughs> and you go on it. So late. you think he didn't handle it well? You don't think it was honorable to respond to a congressional? I, I don't think it was honorable to... to go behind the president's back and play a game to try and get him impeached. That mm. is what I think. You, it, and is... you don't think it was again honorable that he simply answered the questions to the best of his ability, well, I noticed, truthfully. Uh, I, to I, in I noticed when Congressman Nunes uh, addressed him and said, uh, "Mr. Vindman," and he corrected him and said. Uh, sir, it's Lieutenant Colonel Vindman. I mean, please. Well, he, I, I well worked, now wait. He worked hard for that Lieutenant yeah, Colonel. The so man did, has been shot. I mean, he's been, come so, on now. Give so, him his due. So did, <laughs> so did General Flynn. So in my day did uh, Lieutenant Colonel sure, Oliver North. Sure, and we're not and, talking about that. We're talking about him. No, we're talking about- He deserves about, Lieutenant Colonel he, he, for what he's done for this country. So, I mean, honestly, I, I veterans on, and the people that get wounded in, in war, uh, we got to give I understand, but due. let's apply that. Why are, why are they going after General Mike Flynn? Right, well, I, don't I mean know. a 33-year military Vindman. career. I was talking about Vindman we're talking about military service. We're well, and we honor it. That's all I'm saying. So right, anyway, it's, it's, it's clear it's that General you don't Flynn, like him, right? right? You don't like Colonel. Well, Vindman, I th right? I think he snuck around okay. behind the president's back and and did something that was dishonorable. All right, all right. So he's going to be here. And we may get him. We've got an invitation for him to come to speak to us, as we do now for Great. President Trump or and Mike and and Vice President Pence to come. Stop so. me if I call him Mr. Vindman. <laughs> <laughs> no, you wouldn't. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. All right. So now let's zero. And what about anything? I mean, do you have any concerns? Or any of us? Any concerns about the president's um, actually dealings with these with the people? Well, who I'm sure him? he knew he would get fired. Yeah, Trump yeah, has been you. is vindictive. Uh, that's what he does. Although he, gets, he may have thought he was going to be removed from office because of, right? You know, he, he gets rid of people who aren't 120% loyal to him, although he's loyal to no one. So, you know, it's it's not really well, that I surprising. Well, with that. <laughs> he's been loyal to you, right? Uh, yeah. Right, so far. Keep your fingers crossed. <laughs> How about you? Any thoughts on that, uh, Tom? I mean, or do you stay out of this? No, no. I'm, I'm with Rajet on that. I mean, I think this is a pretty flagrant act of retribution. Uh, and he went before Congress and he testified under oath as to what he saw. I can't imagine the difficulty in going before the United States, uh, the entire world, and testifying under an impeachment inquiry only for the third time in American history uh, as to what was happening with the withholding of military aid in exchange for political favors. I mean, that just to me seems almost incomprehensibly difficult. Um, and the courage and political courage it would take to do that, uh, I think, really came through during his testimony. And so I don't think we can just sit here and say that he did this as a backstabbing uh, ploy to undermine President Trump. It's, he did it because he saw something that he viewed based on his experience was very serious yeah, uh, and in his judgment made the right decision. Yeah, and I, I respect him for it. I actually agree with that, just my personal, but I also have to concede to Jeffrey's point. The president won and he can get rid of people that he doesn't trust. And that, that's just I mean, Tom, that if you win this election and you find out that some staff member of yours He's sneaking around saying, I saw the congressman do this. I saw the congressman do that. 
and doesn't come and tell you, and you find out that they're out there causing you all sorts of grief by misinterpreting something that you've done, would you fire them? Well, but you put the caveat, misinterpreting something. Well, <laughs> you've got a lot of conditions in there. But anyway, the point is, would you be upset as well? If it was false. Yeah. But Vindeman was reporting on something that, in his experience, in his direct firsthand experience, he believed to be true. Uh, and that, to me, is the real difference. All right. So now let's just zoom in. Okay. Sorry, and I was that. just going to say, that's really the, the argument here is where Jeffrey right. doesn't believe that the President Trump did anything wrong, whereas even Republicans who voted for his acquittal stood up and said what he did was inappropriate. We hope, what did Susan Collins say? Um, he has learned his lesson, even though he did it, but I'm going to quit him anyways. <laughs> so, you know, that's I mean, really they, the they, argument. They really are trying to have it both ways in some cases, I think. You, you either say it was nothing wrong, and that's why he's, we're going to stand by him, but to say... Well, he did something that we didn't like, but so what? Well, if he did that, then when Barack Obama had that famous conversation with the, on a hot mic with the Russian premier and said, you know, tell Vladimir, I need a little space on missile defense. And then after my election, and, and he got it. In other words, he was asking for Russian interference in his presidential election in 2012. I don't know what no the obsession is with President Obama. If he did it's something, called, it's called single standard for no, everybody. If the president did something that was impeachable, the Republicans who control the House and Senate should have impeached him. They did not because he did nothing. You know, right? You Neither did President Trump. All right. Yes, he, <laughs> so we love Obama. Yes, he and we did. love Trump. Both of them. Right. So okay, let's let's do this. We've we've delved into this. I think we we've uh, examined what happened a lot. But let's get back to this issue because I this is one of my hot button issues: college tuition and what we're doing, what we have done to a generation of young people. I think is a crime. When I got out of college, I had what, maybe seven hundred dollars or something of, of 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 debt that was easily paid off. And that I was probably maybe one of the first generations that even had the access to college loans. What what are you proposing to do to address this issue? Well, I'll start by saying in President Trump's recent budget proposal, he proposed an 8% cut to the Department of Education, a $170 billion cut to student loan funding, and um, eliminating the public service loan forgiveness program altogether. And so uh, he's making this infinitely more difficult for young people to get loan forgiveness and for parents to get loan forgiveness because one thing we have to recognize is that direct plus loan rates now for parents are at eight and a half, nine percent. And my I saw this with my own parents. You know, they're gonna be paying off the interest for the rest of their lives. Uh and and it's just not sustainable. And so what I'd like to see us do, especially in a state like Pennsylvania where we're in the top two or three nationally for student loan debt per student, is to broaden the definition of service uh, and, and make our generation a service generation. And so if you want to go teach at a low-income school, if you want to go into medicine and go into a hospital that needs nurses and physicians, if you want to join the Conservation Corps and participate in the environmental justice movement or go in the Peace Corps, you can do that in exchange for student loan forgiveness. Not that it has to be uh, completely forgiven, but a significant portion of it can be. Um, and that way we can tie the idea of, of service uh, to forgiveness and actually get people investing in their country again. I like that idea. And, and wouldn't that be a good way to bring people? I mean, one of the things that people are saying that we don't have a way outside of the military for people to really work together, different races, different cultures, different a community service thing where you had to report to, to give back to your community and get some loan forgiveness. What do you think of that idea? I, I don't really have a much of a problem with that. Where, where my problem comes is this. When, when you listen to Democrats in particular, but frankly, this is true of some Republicans as well, when they're out there, they'll talk about big corporations and big this and big that. 
the discussion never gets around to what I call big education. Why is it so expensive yeah, to go well, to these schools? Yep, yep. And I would ever so politely suggest, I can see some of my old professors rolling their eyes, but I would ever so politely suggest that colleges themselves have upped the ante. They pay salaries to, to professors. They make of these places, you know, uh, we had an old swimming pool when I was there and I was on the swim team. My goodness, at Franklin and Marshall now, they've got this unbelievable set of facilities. I don't want to pick on my old uh, alma mater, which I love dearly, but I just think that's typical. But most of the colleges think they have to have these fabulous dorms right, and these big right. field and so, houses. And, and so, therefore, mm-hmm. the kids wind up with a, a lifetime of debt because of this. I mean, it cost me uh, and my parents $4,000 a year to go to Franklin and Marshall College. And, you know, $16,000 for four years. You know, I, I forget the figure off the top of my head here, but I've looked into it. Trust me. Oh, no, it's <laughs> We're not. We're long gone from that. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Roger, what do you think about this? Do you like the idea of um, public service and debt forgiveness? And Oh, I love it. Um, I would just push that any plan that was, you know, advocated for, voted on, or implemented, um, just expand it a little bit. A lot of the plans that I'm hearing includes only those in college now. But there's those of us in our 30s now that and even older that aren't in college anymore, but we also still have student loan debt, but we're not included in a lot of these programs that are being promo- you promoted You want to make sure now. they get you under so, that <laughs> I just think we need right. to expand some of these plans a little bit to include those that might not be in college yet, but are still under the weight of student loan debt and can't get under that debt. Okay, well, we're going to let our guy, Tom, have the final say here. Tom, what do you, what else do you want to tell the, the voters out there uh, about why they should vote for you? I would ask them to vote their values. And so if they believe in, in government that doesn't take corporate money, if they believe in policy ideas that are, are tethered to the future, uh, if they b- believe in a Green New Deal to save us from a potential climate catastrophe, if they believe that we need to get weapons of war off the streets uh, and start um, putting together an economy that works for working families, um, then I, I would ask them to to join our cause and, and support us both in the primary in April and in the general in November. Well, great. That's it. And thank you again for joining us here on Battleground PA. Thank you, Rajette. Thank you, Jeffrey. And I look forward to seeing you all again next week on Battleground PA. This was Battleground PA. Be sure to rate and subscribe to us so you don't miss a beat. Have an idea for an episode? Tweet us at BattlegroundPA or email us at topics at battlegroundpa.org. Meanwhile, stay in the know between episodes on penlive.com. Battleground PA is hosted by PenLive's opinion and editor, Joyce Davis, and is produced by Penn Studios director, Salim Michelle McClouf, and edited by Martin Boutros. For more info and past episodes, visit us at battlegroundpa.org.